Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Um, When you're really, really pretty and you're willing to trade your looks and your body to get things that you want, it gives you a sense of power and control that is addicting. And that's what happened to me. And looking back, I can tell you that through all those years, I think I was just trying to feel as good on the inside as I looked on the outside. But I just couldn't figure out how to, I didn't know what was missing. And so all the things that I tried fell short until I found Jesus. From a Playboy bunny to finding Jesus. How did this all happen? We're joined today by Robin Dykstra. She escaped a life of drugs, alcohol, and promiscuity for a fresh start with Jesus. Today in Connections, she shares her story with us. Robin Dykstra is our guest today. She is an ex-Playboy bunny, and now she is living her life for Jesus. You have had plenty of ups and downs. Your life story is unbelievable. It's very interesting. Let's start off at childhood for those listening and tell us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and how things all started off for you. I had the best mom in the whole world. She was brilliant and uh, she just always made me feel like there wasn't anything I couldn't do. And even though she was really um, liberal uh, and by that, I mean, she, we didn't have a lot of rules. It was mostly um, trial by fire. You know, you just had to take responsibility for yourself. So um, it, it, I really, I really felt safe and secure with her. We, I, I like to say that I was raised by the nicest pagans you've ever met because we didn't know anything about, there was no spiritual talk at all in our house. When I was growing up, we had just enough money and pretty good health and no calamity. There was nothing that required intervention. There was no, we didn't need any miracles. And so as a result, kind of took on the role of being our own rulers, you know, governing our own lives, kind of being our own God, little G, because we just felt like we were good people and contributing to society and not making a big mess. And so, um, yeah, I I felt like I had a really good childhood, but what are you going to do? You have nothing to compare it by. (laughs) (laughs) Now, along the way, um, work was part of what you had to do and you worked a few different jobs, but something came up uh, that you decided you would apply for. Tell us a little bit about that job and also the reaction that your mother had when you approached her about this job. Sure. I had, my mom's a PhD. And so when your mom's a PhD, you just go to college. There's not any discussion about that. And I went the first year, but it was really tough sledding. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And so I really felt lost. I was adrift. I'd just broken up with my boyfriend. And (laughs) so it was really a tough, a tough year. So when I came home, she said, well, just get a job. And, and I got a job as a teller in a bank, but 
they take that whole balancing thing so seriously, like to <laughs> the penny every day. And I just couldn't do it. Apparently I've been blonde longer than my hair. So I just, they fired me. And I was looking for a new job and I found the ad in the newspaper that said Playboy bunnies wanted no experience necessary. And I thought I had won the lottery because I was cute as a button and didn't know how to do anything. So I thought this would probably be a really good fit. So I, I told my mom that I was going to apply for the job with fear and trepidation because oh, my mom thought, my mom and her generation fought really hard for women to have choices and um, affirmative action and equal pay and equal rights. And so when I told her that I was going to go apply to be a Playboy bunny, I, I thought that it would go very badly. But my mom loved me. What I, what I, what I see now is that she loved me kind of like Jesus loves us. I'm going to give you guidance. I'm going to give you uh, a manual. The Bible tells us it's full of wisdom and instruction. And I'm going to give you Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. But then, you know, I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. I'm, I'm going to try to influence your decisions. But I, I don't want you to be a robot. I'm going to let you choose. And that's exactly what my mom did. She, I'm sure she wasn't thrilled with the idea, but she said, okay, go ahead and try it. She actually said the window for being a Playboy bunny is probably pretty um, small and you can go to school anytime. And I'm sure she thought I would just go for the summer and then be back. I mean, that was the plan just go be a bunny for a while and then reluctantly go back to school and figure out what I was going to do when I was a big girl. But, oh gosh, it's embarrassing to tell you, Colleen, how good I was at being walking pornography. And so one year turned into, or one summer turned into four years and all the, all the stuff that goes along with a culture like that, the drugs and the men and the drinking and the, you know, all the stuff. So um, what, what did you think that job was going to give you? Like when you first saw the ad and thought of applying, what were you expecting to get from a job like that? That's a great question. I wasn't really sure what a Playboy bunny was. I thought, am I going to have to, you know, is it a prostitution? I, I went to the interview kind of curious And what I found out was that Playboy bunnies are glorified waitresses. They, they serve cocktails and they serve food and they, they're like the hook to get people to come to the club. Um, so when I, when I got there and I got the job, let me just tell you the interview process starts starts your understanding when you when you get there you line up in a cattle call there's maybe a hundred women and they're all gorgeous and they're all wearing practically nothing just like like I was it was in uh, like a swimsuit and so your first your first message is you are nobody special you are completely replaceable we have a long list 
of women who would fill in for you if you don't toe the line and keep your bunny image and do all the things that we expect of you. And I thought, um, so they keep it, they keep it pretty PG according to the bunny handbook and the, the, the property on the property, but there's a whole subculture that goes along with places like that because um, when you're really, really pretty and you're willing to trade your looks and your body to get things that you want, it gives you a sense of power and control that is addicting. And that's what happened to me. I was shocked at what men would be willing to pay me or give me in exchange for things that I had been doing for a really long time. I was fairly promiscuous before I went to Playboy. That was just the culture, the the time that I was in. And so to have this intoxicating control over my life was pretty compelling. And looking back, I can tell you that through all those years, I think I was just trying to feel as good on the inside as I looked on the outside, but I just couldn't figure out how to, I didn't know what was missing. And so all the things that I tried fell short until I found Jesus. And I love that we're having this conversation and that we're including the word playboy bunny and Jesus (laughs) all into one conversation for those trying to figure out how these two are connected. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you managed to find Jesus. Well, I, I, I got in, uh, after I left Playboy, I started dating this sweet Christian boy. He had been a football player and he, I call him hot and hunky because he totally was. <laughs> <laughs> and he started taking me to church and explaining um, who Jesus was. And I, I just wanted what he had. I, I wanted that that, that bulletproof faith. I wanted that courage under fire. And so, uh, he, I said yes to Jesus at a Christmas conference that or concert that we went to one, um, one winter. And I, I had a Holy spirit encounter at that conference, but I didn't know that's what it was. I was, it was in one of those beautiful old churches and, the the stained glass window and the red carpeting and the heavy oak pews. And as I'm listening to the choir and I'm watching the drama and I'm listening to the message, my body starts reacting in such a way that I have never experienced before. Like my stomach is all rumbly and, and churning and, and not like nausea, but like, I guess quickening. And my, my hands were trembling. My eyes were leaking and my heart was pounding And I did not know that this was God inviting me to something more. I didn't, I didn't know that that's how the Holy Spirit can move in people, but it was just, it was just um, like, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. This is for you. Uh, I didn't hear a, a, a voice or anything, but it was like, I, I, I see you. It's like the spotlight of heaven was on me in that pew. And he just, 
made himself known to me. And so when the pastor gave the invitation to say yes to Jesus, I said, yes, I I took the first step and I should clarify that I was saved. I, I said yes to Jesus as savior, but I didn't surrender to Jesus as Lord, master King for a long time. Um, but it was the first step and it was a good first step. And, and that's how the Lord leads you, right? Like a trail of breadcrumbs. You just one step at a time. Thank goodness. He doesn't ask us to be instantly transformed and running at excellence right from the get go. He was very gentle, wooing me deeper and deeper into relationships with him. So how did you eventually leave that lifestyle behind then? What did that process look like? Well, I got involved with a man who was scary, dangerous, and uh, he he and I got married because he thought that would be a really good idea. And again, just trying to figure out what's missing in my life. So I we got married, and um, we weren't very good at it. My smart mouth ran into his short temper one too many times, and he hit me, and I knew that if I stayed, he would, I would probably die. Um, This is just, this is what he did. He was just one of those guys on the periphery of the culture that settles agreements and collects money and gets people to say yes to things they don't want to say yes to. And while I thought I would be safe with him from every other thing that was going on, I wasn't. There were drugs and guns and crazy people. And finally, it just became so apparent that I would have to run. So I, I, uh, I packed my car and I left and went back to my mom's house and tried to start over. That's, uh, that was the catalyst for leaving Playboy. Now you were able to start over, but, um, there's a lot of loss uh, along the way in there as well. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Hot and Hunky and I were married for seven years and it was a little bumpy because what we had in common was that we were both in love with me. Not a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, uh, he was just so smitten and so loved me like Jesus loves me that he, I would make a mess and he would reset us and we'd start over. And after all, after him loving me so well, I wanted to do something nice for him. I had refused to have, like, I was not interested in reproducing any clones. I just didn't want to give up my hourglass figure and my various addictions and have him come home and ah, kiss a baby before me. I mean, what would that be? That'd be bad. (laughs) So, but I finally realized that I could trust him, that he wasn't going to leave me or hit me or abandon me. And And so I I just want to make a family with him. And so we had two kids and a cat that didn't get into the trash. And my relationship with Jesus had gone really deep by then. And then he had a heart attack. Uh, He was 39 and he had one of those widow making heart attacks. He was gone in a second. One minute, one morning I woke up and he didn't and everything changed. Um, how did this affect your faith and, and how you were feeling in that sense? That's a good question. I, 
am so thankful that I was never, dis- never, um, I never got into any other false religion. I never, so everything that I had been taught by my Bible study leaders, I believed that was true. And when, when hot and hunky died, I told the Lord, I am moving to the front of the widow and the fatherless line. There's a lot in the Bible that promises that you will take care of us. And so I am, I am claiming those promises and he fell on me. The Holy Spirit came like a, like a warm, fuzzy blanket, you know, that peace that surpasses understanding I, mm-hmm. that came right away. And then he mobilized an army of women that brought chicken salad sandwiches and, and circus tickets. And they prayed and prayed and prayed for me and I made it. Um, it wasn't, I, 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 I miss the closeness that I had when you're, when you're in the middle of something that you have no control over, that you, you cannot fix, there's nothing that anybody can say that will make you feel better or change the circumstances. The only place that you can go is the face of God. And so I, I did, I just was nose to nose with him. I could, I, I you know, if just to hear him say, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Lots of passages in the Bible that say fear not and lots of passages in the Bible that say, I am with you, don't be afraid. Um, and I just, I just stood on those and I made it. Uh, I didn't want to be a single mom. I didn't want to have to figure out when to change the oil in the car. I hated carrying my own groceries and and there was so much about it that I hated. And but God is big enough and he let me say that. I, I hate this situation, but I can trust you. So I can honestly say I never really got mad at God because I realized that we make choices every day that affect me and um everybody around me. And hot and hunky had started smoking. And he was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and also dabbling in some prescription drugs and also some marijuana. And his choices made him, his heart very vulnerable to attack and his choices spilled on me so that when he died of heart disease, a heart attack, it affected me. So I was a little ticked at him for sure, but I was never mad at God because um, I just felt his presence and his affirmation and with me to the point where I, I just, you know, I hate this, but I trust you. I hate this, but I trust you. Now, not only you went through that loss and you clung to God and you relied on him to walk you through this, you ended up going through another loss just a short time later too. Um, Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. You know, after about a year, after, after hot and hunky, his name was Jay died. (laughs) I, I just kept doing the last thing that God told me to do, raise your kids teach the Bible, go to work. And after about a year of being supported by 
the Holy Spirit and in prayer by my friends, I really felt like I was ready to get married again. And I actually said to the Lord, you know, I worked really hard to be, uh, to learn to be a good wife. Don't you think it seems like an awful waste of raw talent to leave me single? <laughs> so I did get married again to an adventure boy. His name was Craig and Craig came with an airplane, a motorcycle and a passport. And, uh, so first I got a motor, first I got my pilot's license and then I got my motorcycle endorsement. And then we started putting stamps in that passport, And I really felt like God had given me back everything that had been taken from me. And we'd been married about two years and Craig took a routine flight from Michigan, where we live over to Pennsylvania to pick up a friend. And somewhere along the way, he disappeared. um, We found out later that he'd made a pilot error um, miscalculation and judgment during a thunderstorm and had it had caused the airplane to crash and while he was missing for all those weeks i i i can remember thinking everybody wants to see a miracle but nobody wants to need one right <laughs> but i was in a position where i really needed a miracle and so we we mobilized prayer partners all over and we prayed for him to be returned and this did not turn out the way I wanted. I wanted a recovery. I mean, I wanted, I wanted him to be returned. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I guess they call it a rescue. I wanted a rescue, but I got a recovery. Um, the crash was just too, too awful. And he died on impact. But even in that, um, you know, there are women all who are married to, missing in action warriors who still don't know they're missing, missing, missing for decades. And I am really so thankful that the Lord gave me the closure that he did. And I, I, I tell the story that um, like when I'm speaking at retreats and conferences, women by this time are just like, take me off your speed dial. I do not want to know you. I don't, I don't want to be around you. But what I can say is that I learned to trust God on a new level that I would never have had if these things hadn't happened because I, after um, the adventure, after adventure boys plane crashed, I was like, what in the heck God, I mean, two husbands in four years. What are the chances of that? That just is so unlikely. And, and he, he just whispered in my, in my ear and it wasn't audible. Again, uh, when I say the Lord speaks to me, it feels more like a, a thought, a very profound thought or a very urgent thought or, um, a persistent thought just traipses across the backyard of my brain repeatedly. And what I heard was, Robin, you can trust me. And I, he took me right to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge me in every way, and I will set your path straight. And I got to tell you, there was a lot I did not understand about what was happening in our lives. But as I look at the path that my life has taken, And the number of times that God has rescued, redeemed, interrupted to redirect my path. It's pretty remarkable. And I, you know, that should be enough to say, okay, God, I can trust you with this. 
But as if that wasn't enough, you can go to any story in the Bible about the number of people that God invites to something that requires an enormous level of trust. Like, think about Noah. Uh, build a boat. It hasn't rained yet, but this thing called rain is coming and we're going to flood the earth. So just take 120 years and build a boat. I mean, would you have made it 120 years? I don't know if I'd have made it the 120 years. And then I think about Abraham and God comes to him and he says, pick up your stuff and just start walking. And I'll let you know when you get there. I, I want to know the destination. Don't you want to know the destination? It, it just requires a lot of trust for that to happen, even Mary, New Testament, like, um, I have surveyed all the women of all time, and I have chosen you to be the mother of my child. Okay, how's that going to happen? And even beyond all of that, if if God asked me to carry his son, I would think I would be hooked up, you know, with credit cards and limo services and private suites at fancy hospitals, but wow, that is not her experience at all. And yet, Noah trusted, Abraham trusted, um, Mary trusted, and they are counted as faithful. They They are the models of imperfect people, perfectly trusting God's plans for their lives. And I, I want to be, I want to be counted in that. I, I, I'm a big advocate of sharing your story because I believe there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and then there is the You Testament. Hmm. And if, if you, if you have had any experience with God's love and forgiveness, compassion, I just think we need to share it and, and be part of of um that that legacy of god's faithfulness to us don't you (laughs) you are (laughs) and you are sharing your story now which is great uh you have a new book titled the widow wore pink i do the reason behind that title yeah well i was i do a lot of speaking love that love telling my story live and every time I tell it, there'd be some lady come up to me and go, oh my gosh, I wish my cousin had been here. My boss had been here. My sister had been here. My mom had been here. Do you have a book? And I would always say no, because I didn't want to write the book. See, when you stand on the stage and you take 13 seconds to say, I used to be a Playboy bunny, but now I'm better. Now I'm smarter. Now God has fixed me. Um, that You can just breeze right through that. But when you write a book, you've got to tell how you were stupid, how long you were stupid, who you were stupid with. It's just Oh, it's just really embarrassing. I mean, really embarrassing. So we wrote the book because it can go places that I can't go. And one of the stories in the book is why I wore pink after I'd married, after I'd buried hot and hunky, I knew what was coming for the funeral for Adventure Boy. I knew that I would be standing alone in a funeral parlor room with his casket behind me and a line of hundreds of people coming to pay their respects. And when they got to me, they would want to, they would want to ask me, why did this happen? How, how, how could this be? And 
<clears throat> the widow, sorry, the widow ends up comforting all these people <clears throat> in line to comfort her. The roles are reversed in the most unusual way, and I couldn't face it in black. I just couldn't. So I wore a pink dress to Adventure Boy's funeral because it set the tone for conversation. People saw me standing in that light pink dress with a smile on my face, and I wasn't happy about the circumstances, but I was happy that I wasn't alone. I was happy that I would see Craig again. I was happy that the Lord had um, given me this peace. I was happy that my kids were we're going to be okay because we live in a country that provides support. And I belonged to a church that loved us. So I wore pink so that other people could have hope that no matter what they face, that they wouldn't be alone in it either. I like that a lot. What do you say to somebody listening that is grieving right now and they aren't sure what to do with the loss they're experiencing? Yeah, that's so hard because grieving is as individual as your mama's chili. Everybody does it different. (laughs) That's great. That's so true. (laughs) Yeah, so what I tell women that I meet is, um, you know, if you're happy, don't be afraid to smile. If you're sad, have a good cry. I mean, really howl it out. Wipe your nose, wash your face, take a nap. And then re re go after it again. Um, it's it's just a long process, and uh, the best way that you can prepare for any kind of calamity is to know Jesus and invest yourself in community. Because bad things happen to everybody, and the we have an enemy that wants to isolate us and keep us alone. The worst thing you can do is try to power through this on your own, believing the lie that you're just too much trouble or you're just a big burden or nobody cares. And um, that makes you a really easy target. You know, uh, what is that? First, first Peter 5, 8, we have uh, the, the devil prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour. Yeah, he's going after the one on the fringe. He, that, that, that lion is always going to come after the one on the fringe. And so um, every, every hunt, my, my husband's a hunter. I've been remarried now. Uh, and, but the hunting videos that we watch, <laughs> now those, those lions don't go after the fat, happy, popular animal in the middle of the pack. They go after the ones on the fringe. So put yourself in the middle of a pack and don't be afraid to ask for help. That's what I would say. And what advice would you give to people out there who know of someone who is a widow and is going through this at the moment? Yeah, it's scary to have a friend who's a widow because um, you don't want to hurt her feelings and you don't want to make it worse. And what do I say? And all that. But the best thing you can do is just look her in the eye and say, I'm so sorry. It just stinks. I'm so sorry. And then just uh, invite her. You know, um, spend time with her. Ask her to talk about the person that died. Uh, tell her, tell, pray for her. Um, mark your calendar for maybe three months out, six months out, nine months out, and just send her a card or flowers so that she doesn't feel like she's forgotten. Um, just just uh, don't try to fix her. If you don't have anything, if you don't, if you don't know what to say, just say, I'm sorry, I'm here. 
I'm praying. What do you need? I, I don't know. Because for me, I was the first one. I was only 40 when uh, Jay died and none of my friends knew what to do. And I can remember one girl came and she said, Robin, I love you. I don't know what to do. I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'm going to say something mm-hmm. stupid. Forgive me in advance. Just tell me what I can do to help you. And that was so refreshing because that made me feel like um, I wasn't on my own in it. The Widow War Pink, a great book on finding joy again in the midst of grief, trusting in Jesus. Uh, tell us where can we find the book and how can we stay up to date with you and what's going on in your world? Yeah, you can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, Christian bookstores. It's all over the place. And to stay in touch with me, I'm a, I love telling stories and I write a, a weekly devotional. And you can find that weekly devotional at robindykstra.com backslash blog. Thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. It's great pleasure. talking with you again. Thank and you. I feel the same way. You guys are great. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.